Nintendo King! Ha! I'm the Nintendo Queen. Now inside specially marked bags of Chips Ahoy and Oreo cookies, there's a game card and a chance to win one of ten trips to watch the Nintendo World Championships. Game cards? They were just here. To see if you win a free trip, simply scratch the game card. Or for a free card, write Game Card Request, Box 9066, Clinton, Iowa, 52736. I wonder what happened to those game cards. More cookies, sir? Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, That's right. right. We are. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. Welcome to almost episode 140. We're doing it. Wow, 139. What a great, what a great episode. I'm sure this will be lost to the annals of history. <laughs> Well, so we got an exciting episode for you all today. Uh, thank you for coming back and listening to us here today. I don't know. I don't have anything for the bit. Anyway, Seth, uh, what have you been recently playing? Well, recently I've been playing Diablo 3, which was released back in 2012 by Blizzard. Diablo 3 is a hack and slash game where you fight demons and undead. And you pick up loot and explore dungeons, similar to Diablo 2 and Diablo 1. Arguably, I prefer Diablo 1 and 2 because of the nostalgia, but Diablo 3 I own on the Switch, and I play it with my wife. So there's that, those pros there. I know that I think even Diablo 3 has a little bit of uh, community polarization to it. Not as polarizing as Immortal, which is garbage. I never got into it season passes where you pay for like things where you get limited things yeah call of duty does it diablo 3 does it other games do it i've never gotten into it however i do like just playing a game which you can do i'm playing as a demon hunter and my wife is playing as a necromancer with an army of undead and the screen is usually full with explosions as we kill through lots of monsters it's uh, always a lot of fun just playing games with my wife since she doesn't particularly like video games so i always enjoy playing games with her so zach what have you been recently been playing recently i've been playing a game called wonder boy the dragon's trap this is a remake of Wonder Boy 3, The Dragon's Trap, which originally came out for the Sega Master System way back in 1989. This game is a remake made by .emu, who we've definitely discussed before. I think they just released Shredder's Revenge, didn't they? They did, yep. So .emu, their, their kind of whole shtick is that they revitalize these old arcade games or classic video games and kind of give them a fresh coat of paint for the modern era. That's what they did with Wonder Boy The Dragon's Trap in 2017. It's actually a really fun game. And the remake is really impressive because the way that they did the remake was they wanted it to feel as close to the original game as possible. And in order to do that, they actually reverse engineered the original Sega Master System code, taking the original Z80 processing code that was used for the game and getting it to work in a, in a modern sense. And I think that's really impressive if you think about it. Like they could have easily just created a generic platforming engine and slapped a Wonder Boy logo on it and said, this is a remake, but they really put attention to detail. The game features updated graphics, which are a bit more of like hand-drawn style of graphics. 
but it also features a way that you can toggle between uh, the original Sega Master System style graphics and it has updated music that's all orchestrated, but you can toggle back to the original chiptune style music. So um, you can essentially like make the game look the way you might remember it if you grew up playing the original Wonder Boy. What is also really cool is that the original ROM for Wonder Boy 3, The Dragon's Trap, is in the game files. So uh, I assume you might be able to unlock it later, but if you go into like the files on your computer, there's a folder labeled ROM. And if you open up that, there's a .sms file, and that is the original Wonder Boy ROM, legally provided to you because you bought the game, so it is there for you. So if you have a Master System flashcart or a Sega Genesis flashcart, you can put that on there and play it on real hardware because uh, the Genesis is, of course, backwards compatible with the Master System. Now, in the game, you play as either Wonder Boy or Wonder Girl and you go on an adventure and uh the adventure consists of you at the beginning of the game you're kind of this like pretty powerful warrior you're like one hitting killing things storming through a castle you've got like 12 hearts it's almost like you're at the end of your adventure and then you fight this it looks like mecha godzilla and when you destroy him you get hit with this uh glowing flame which turns you into a dragon a very small dragon but a dragon nonetheless and then you've got to kind of find a way to reverse this now curse on you as you want to become human again so so it's um, kind of a neat little storyline. I think it's cute. It has kind of a adventure RPG element to it. It's not like a traditional RPG. You're not leveling up, but kind of has like a Zelda 2 vibe where you can go into shops and you can buy stuff. So I definitely recommend giving it a shot. As of the recording of this episode, I believe it is free on Epic Games, but you can most likely pick it up for like, I think it's like usually around 20 bucks, but that's what I've recently been playing. Fun. So today's episode is about the Nintendo World championship yes yes which were pretty cool which neither of us really have memories of since it was a long time ago yeah well it was in 1990 so i was negative three um so i wouldn't have been able to compete i don't think i think i would have just been off the age bracket yes and i was uh i was uh the reverse of negative three you were three I was three. Also, probably not allowed to compete. Technically, you would have been because there was there was an eleven and under category. Ooh, I don't know if I would be. My hand-eye coordination wouldn't be that great. I don't know. I should go back in time and ask three-year-old Seth. You should. If you build a time machine, that can be the first thing that you do. Now, the Nintendo World Championships are pretty cool. Uh, They're kind of a really interesting point in gaming history and in Nintendo's history. Now, 1989 was a really big year for Nintendo. Not only were they absolutely crushing it in terms of sales, but also it was their 100th anniversary. Uh, So they celebrated in a lot of different ways. But one way that they celebrated was through a Nintendo Challenge Championship in Canada. Uh, This was a coast coast video game contest held in Canada where players would be challenged to take part in a competition where they would play various games to see who could score the highest amount of points. The event saw about 80,000 players attempt to rank up the highest score, uh, according to a magazine I found, uh, which had a little detail about the event. I believe the event was also co-sponsored by Pepsi and Frito-Lay. Now, in uh, 1989, there was also another thing that was happening that was very important. That was the release of the movie, The Wizard. The Wizard was a movie directed by Todd Howard and was about a group of kids who go on a road trip to go compete in a Nintendo-themed championship. 
Championship. Now, this movie was very much supported by Nintendo to the point where modern reviews have often called it a 100-minute-long commercial for Nintendo products. In fact, Nintendo used the wizard to officially announce the release of Super Mario Bros. 3, which is revealed as the final game in the competition that the players are, are playing, which seems to me a little unfair because it's like, see how well you can do with this game that you've never played before. Though one of the characters like is playing it and figures out a secret the first time. But uh, the wizard overall received lukewarm critical reactions when it came out, but managed to be a smash hit in terms of box office and today is considered a cult classic. It also served as a really good advertisement for a plan that Nintendo was currently cooking up. Nintendo wanted to expand on previous smaller competitions in the Canadian Nintendo Challenge Championship. They retained the rights to the championship from the sponsors and renamed it to the Nintendo World Championship because first you go after Canada, then you get the world. So the, the first Nintendo World Championship would be held at the beginning of March in 1999 in Dallas, Texas, and it would go on to tour 29 cities throughout the United States. The event was largely in three age groups, 11 and under, 12 and 17, and 18 and over, which I appreciate because around this time, early to mid-90s or give or take, there was also Nickelodeon. And on Nickelodeon, there was a show called Guts, and they matched up people in different age groups. They had like 11-year-olds competing against 17-year-olds, and then they were always shocked why the 17-year-olds were able to climb the aggro crag faster than the 11-year-old, and I was always pissed. So this at least had some semblance of order. Now, these groups would compete against each other to see who could score the highest points. The initial competitions throughout the cities lasted three days and were divided into three rounds. The first round required players to score at least 175,000 points. And to get into the semifinals, they needed to compete against seven other players and score at least 200,000 points. The Sunday of the competition, the semifinalists would then be broken into age group again. A hundred players would be whittled down to seven players who would then compete on stage in front of a large crowd. And games during the 1990 time period were a lot of skill-based games. Most video games, I would say 75% of video games, especially on consoles, were skill-based. Uh-huh. In order to be good at them, you need to have good hand-eye coordination. There are still skill-based games today, though there are also a lot of story-driven games as well. So games have kind of a blended medium, where back in 1990, they were primarily, I would say, skill-based, especially on the consoles. Now, out of the seven players who would compete during these semifinals, they would then get two of the top players to go head-to-head for the city champion. The city champion, the one who beat that head-to-head, would win a trophy, $250, and a trip to the world finals at Universal Studios Hollywood. Oh, man. That sounds like a good old prize category from a game show. Yes, like Guts. (laughs) And and the winner of this will be going to the Universal Studios. Hollywood! One ticket! You have to buy the rest! Have a nice day, Kick Rocks! Now, the runner-up won a power pad, which was like a DDR-style peripheral. You could, like, step on certain pads to get it to correspond to the A and B buttons. Awful, awful prize. Uh, They also won a Game Boy, which was a much better prize. Each finalist would also get a copy of the Nintendo World Championship gray cartridge at the very end of the championships. So all of the finalists from all the city champions received a copy 
of the gray Nintendo World Championship cartridge that they would have competed on. Let's put a pin in this for now. At the World Championship itself, players would once again be split into three age groups. The 18 and over would compete first, then the 11 and under would compete, and then lastly, the 12 to 17 group. The top seven players from each group would then compete against each other for the top two player spots, who would then compete head-to-head to to be crowned the champion of their respective age group. The Nintendo World Championship actually utilized, as I was alluding to, a special cartridge. It was solely made for this competition. The cartridge had three games built into it. They kind of acted like mini-games. You had six minutes and 21 seconds to play through challenges based on all three of these games. The first game was Super Mario Brothers, and you were required to collect 50 coins. The next, Rad Racer, was required to complete a specialized circuit made specifically for the competition. And the final game was Tetris, which you would play until the timer ran out. Now, score was based differently for each game. The score you earned in Mario would act as the initial base score, with no multiplier being applied. The Rad Racer score that you would earn would be multiplied by 10, and the Tetris score would be multiplied by 25. This is how you get to that very large number. Players found it was best to get through the first two games as quickly as possible and get to Tetris so they could rack up the most points, since the Tetris score would be multiplied by 25. So just blow through Mario and Rad Racer and just get to the game that would just run the clock down and earn the most points. Super Mario Bros. ended up having a few different play styles. Some players, like Thor Ackerlund, would choose to collect the 20 coins down the first pipe in World 1-1, then die, restart the level, collect 20 coins, die again, and then finally collect the last 10. Using this method, he ended up finishing with 4 million points. This method worked well because the player could not get a game over in the Nintendo World Championship version of Super Mario Bros. Another player, Jeff Falco, opted for a different method. This was to go down the first pipe, collect the 20 coins, then finish the level. The remaining coins would be collected in World 1-2. He earned the highest score during the city competition with 2.8 million points. Thus, it looked like the strategy of Ackerland was superior. After all was said and done, there were three champions. Jeff Hansen, who fell in the 11 and under category, Thor Ackerland, 12 through 17, and Robert Whiteman, 18 and over. The winners took home a $10,000 savings bond, a new 1990 Geo Metro convertible, and a 40-inch rear projection TV, and a gold Mario trophy. Uh, the runners-up would receive a $1,000 savings bond and a silver Mario trophy. After the competition, the three finalists also decided to hold an informal competition between the three of them to see who could best the other. Ackerland came in first. Hanson and second, and Whiteman in third. Not long after winning, Ackerland would then become the official spokesperson for Comerica, which was an unlicensed Nintendo developer that competed directly with Nintendo. <laughs> that's fun, though. I feel like that's where winners of uh, competitions like that go to live in places like Comerica. I do also like that um, Ackerland and Hansen scored better than the 18 and older, which just goes to show you that your video game skill goes down with age. <laughs> yes, yeah. As Ackerland was in his peak video game age and was able to defeat the others. Now, as mentioned, the Nintendo World Championship used a very unique cartridge 
The cartridge looked like a standard gray NES cartridge, but it featured a printed white label with the championship logo on it. It also had dip switches and instructions for these switches printed on the cover. These switches were used to set the time of the game. Only 90 cartridges are known to exist. The 90 that were provided to the individual finalists. Because why would Nintendo make more than 90? if they weren't going to use them. Right. This has made it the rarest Nintendo Entertainment System cartridge in existence. Values range, but it has sold in the past on the low end of $3,000 back in 2005 to the high end of $26,400 back in 2019. This This isn't the only Nintendo World Championship cartridge, however, as there is also a different version of it. At the time of the Nintendo World Championship, the magazine Nintendo Power, which was also run by Nintendo, ran a contest of their own. 26 people won and were given a golden Nintendo World Championship cartridge. The golden cartridge had a color Nintendo World Championship logo plastered on it, but the internals and the games were made the same as the standard gray cartridge. A golden Nintendo World Championship cartridge has sold in the low end of $5,100, which back in 2007, and a high of 26 $6,677 in 2015. There are also reproduction cartridges available via a website called Retro USB. These cartridges are blue in color and clearly labeled as reproductions. As these are rare and valuable cartridges, you want to make sure it's clearly a reproduction versus a counterfeit. Now, the reproduction cartridges are sold for $60. So (laughs) if you want to have a Nintendo World Championship cartridge and you don't want to spend the price of a moderately sized car then you might want to check out retro usb we're not a sponsor but they usually keep a good stock going of the nintendo world championship cartridge and they uh, are known to work fine on original nintendos as well as modern clones so if you have like a hyperkin device it should work perfectly and so for the price of 60 dollars, you can have your own nintendo world championship you can have your friends over you can sit around your nintendo entertainment system and you can run through the challenges that were determined and score them as as they were seth you are beating me to the punch because maybe next year for extra life we can do a nintendo world championship oh was it the timing on the nintendo world championship like six six minutes and 21 seconds so us playing through it together would take us 12 minutes out of the 24 hours that we need to (laughs) yeah yeah so we'll just do a mini one like we can do it like three in the morning now the nintendo world championships were not the first video game competition uh but they would certainly set the standard for how people see video game competitions. Video game competitions prior were really like groups of people with a bunch of TVs hooked up on a stage in a rented out ballroom, and it would probably smell like cigarettes and bad pizza. The Nintendo World Championships were a stadium event. This was like a massive event with thousands of people in the audience cheering you know it was heavily promoted uh it was a really really cool thing now nintendo while it seemed like they were going to make this an annual thing by its name of like nintendo world championship 1990 did not host a 1991 nintendo world championship they did not host a 1992 nintendo world championship nor 1993 however in 2015 they officially declared the next nintendo world championship for the 25th anniversary this competition 
competition consisted of players playing through some more modern games. Eight Best Buys were used across the United States for qualifiers, with players playing the Wii U title Ultimate NES Remix. The final competition was streamed live from Los Angeles, and players would compete in the games of Splatoon, The Legend of Zelda, Metroid Prime Federation Force, Super Metroid, Mario Kart 8, Balloon Fight, and Super Smash Bros. for the Wii U. The final contest would have players play through custom levels within Super Mario Maker, which at the time had not been yet released. The two finalists were a professional speedrunner named Narcissa Wright and a guy named John Numbers. I feel like John Numbers is a, uh, a spy. Numbers would go on to win the championship title. In 2017, Nintendo held another Nintendo World Championship. Qualifiers once again took place at Best Buy, and John Numbers returned to clinch a spot in the finals. The main event was held at the Manhattan Center's Grand Ballroom and streamed via Twitch and YouTube. Players would compete in The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, Super Smash Bros. for the Wii U, Metroid Samus Returns, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, Splatoon 2, and Balloon Fight, on top of a variety of other games. However, John Numbers would be beaten out by a guy named Thomas G, or as I like to call him, Tommy G. Tommy G, victor of the 2017 Nintendo World Championship. Nintendo has not yet declared a next world championship, but when they do, maybe, just maybe, Classic Gaming Brothers will be there. That's not a promise. I want to go back and talk about the cartridges a little bit longer. There's the gray cartridges and the gold cartridges, and the gray ones went out to the 90 people who actually participated in it, and the gold ones were just sent out through a magazine. So if you are looking in the market to buy a high-end Nintendo Entertainment System game. Personally, I think I would go for the gray cartridge. I feel like that has, even though there was more of them, I feel like it has a more significant, somebody earned it, where, you know, writing into a magazine and getting chosen is not really, you didn't, compete right you are arbitrarily chosen and and given a gold cartridge i think it would have been nice if it was switched so like the 90 cartridges were gold and the 26 cartridges were gray that were sent out but the video game market itself has dramatically changed especially with the uptick of the whole grading industry the auctions and now the possible bubble popping because of the possible fraud that happened between the grading industry and the auction houses i I think it's an interesting thing to think about when somebody asks you what is the rarest nintendo entertainment system cartridge you could say it's just this collection of games it's this nintendo world championship there is another one isn't there like a more sport themed cartridge that's yeah there's stadium events uh stadium events became track and field but it was originally released under the name stadium events and then there was an issue i think they had to recall it and then they released it as track and field but there were like a handful of stadium events that were released in stores so that's also a very rare rare game it's essentially just a misprint because i think track and field is like pretty cheap (laughs) i think that's like a five dollar game where stadium events is like a eight thousand dollar game that's kind of funny that um they're both kind of like championship games like a state stadium event you think of like a championship type deal yeah i also want to say that the nintendo world championships really in 1990 i think helped kind of evolve into esports right it made 100 yeah it made like yes. video gaming and watching video gaming to be a, a thing that people could uh, arguably you could get better at playing video games than somebody else and then win actual money i think they very much normalized esports or at least helped set the the field in motion to normalize esports because i think for a period of time video games had kind of a vibe to them that was uh negative in terms of stigma you know 
know, especially due to the video game crash, but video games have always kind of been associated with nerd culture. And I feel like the Nintendo World Championships were cool. And I think that's what they were able to do was they were able to bring some coolness to the whole video game scene. You know, not saying like Nintendo was not popular, but I just feel like the idea of like old video game competitions from like the 80s seems so like nerdy to me. I mean, it was like, again, people in like a rental ballroom uh you know all hanging around everyone like knew each other uh playing playing these games you know and they weren't really well organized half the time you know they were they're there but like sometimes the cartridges would just turn off sometimes the systems had issues whereas with this it was like a it was an organized event it was like heavily publicized and people were really excited about it especially because the wizard came out the year before and was all about this exact thing so you know nintendo was able to really get double the advertisement because i think every kid who probably saw the wizard was like i want to do that and a lot of kids got to do it yeah and we talked about a contest as well or a competition um previously back in our episode 82 you can draw parallels to the nintendo world championship to episode 82 the sword quest contest yeah yeah which the sword quest contest for any of those who has not gone back to listen to the episode uh, we recommend it it's a fun interesting if you thought the nintendo world championship was interesting the sword quest contest is also interesting but the sword quest contest was put on by atari and was going to be in tune with the release of their games and as they released three different games they would have a contest to see who could be best at the game and essentially have those who would be best compete against each other and it was a great idea in theory however it just happened at a really bad time yeah because atari went bankrupt in the like the middle of it happening yeah yeah so nintendo did not go bankrupt no nintendo was like we have we can do this nintendo probably was expecting a loss on on this but i mean to be honest i don't know how much money nintendo made from this event but they probably didn't lose much right especially if they charged tickets for the, the show if they yeah. charge tickets and you had a sold out stadium, you probably made back your costs of the cartridge run and the prizes, right? They probably netted out at least. This is my my mind at work here. I'm going to say that they netted close to a profit. They didn't blow out a profit because if they did, they would have had, you know, year after year of Nintendo World Championship if they made like record breaking profits on this. So my my thought and assumption is that they probably came in close to paying back, either they came in a little as a little bit of a loss, or they came in neutral, and somebody um, in Nintendo's executive wing saw that and said, "Let's not do those again." Like it was right. fine that we did it, but let's just not no. <laughs> and then they didn't do it for twenty five years. So they obviously they obviously were like, nah, "That was a fun thing," but no, no, it was too much money. In all fairness to Nintendo, they did do some other video game competitions, but they were different than the world. Ch- it, there wasn't it wasn't to like the standard of the world championship. Yeah, it wasn't called a, a world championship. Uh, I, I also do like just a quick note. I was again looking at the prizes that all three actual champions got. Um, you know, ten thousand dollars savings bond. That's great. The rear projection television, beautiful. Gold plated Mario trophy, absolutely. A 1990 Geo Metro convertible, which for the kids that was able to drive that, the, the 18 and older category, I'm sure he was happy, but like the 11 year old getting a Geo Metro convertible. Or the 11 year old and under. Imagine if he's like seven. I'm not sure how old John Hansen was, but yeah, imagine he was like seven or eight and he was like, yeah. Mom, I got a car. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to drive this to 2000. Yeah. And cars changed pretty significantly from 1990 to 2000. Imagine they just parked in a garage for him. When you're old enough, you could drive this. 
Uh, I'm sure. They, I'm sure if he was I happy. if I was Jeff Hansen's parent, I would have sold it immediately. Though out of all the prizes they won, I would say obviously the ten thousand dollars savings bond and the gold Mario trophy those held up, right? That those prizes, good prizes. Because whenever you get a cash prize, it's fine. Forty inch rear projection TV, though, I think that even holds up worse than the nineteen ninety Geo Metro <laughs> convertible. <laughs> have this big bulk that's going to go out of favor in less than 20 years. I had a friend who had a, a rear projection TV back in the early 2000s or so, and they were pretty cool. They're pretty cool, but they, yeah, when you wouldn't see those around nowadays. But yeah, so that's going to be our Nintendo World Championship episode. A fun time in, in, the, in history. Yeah. Uh, maybe, hopefully, Nintendo will do another one. Yeah, maybe they'll do something for the 40th anniversary. Anyway, we're now going to get into the Retro Rewind segment, uh, where Seth and I had previously provided each other with games. Um, for those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode, or maybe you had forgotten, I gave Seth Kirby's Avalanche, and Seth gave me Lemmings for the Apple II. Seth. Do you want to go first? Sure, yeah. So I played through Kirby's Avalanche, which was released for the SNES back in 1995 for PAL and North America regions only. And it was released for the SNES in 1995 for PAL and North America regions only because it is just Super Puya Puya, but reskinned with Kirby characters. It was developed by HAL Laboratory in combination with Compile and Banpresto and was published by Nintendo. And they took the Super Puya Puya puzzle game that's very popular in Japan. They wanted to sell it to the American and uh, European market. And they said in order to sell it to the American and European market, we have to make it something that Americans and Europeans buy. So they made it Kirby. And really that's what they did they essentially did made that so they made this the puzzle game that already had limited english in it uh palatable to a worldwide audience uh it holds up for sure uh it's a it's a pretty good puzzler it's a fun game if you like kirby and if you like kirby and tetrisy style so if, if you haven't played puya puya or kirby's avalanche or dr robotnik's mean bean machine if you played any of those games you've played the other ones but essentially it's a it's a game of tetris it's tetris like i would say essentially you have a a column that you're in control of and there are falling ball creatures that are connected to each other yeah so officially they're called Puyos. Yeah, but... so there's falling Puyos, but in Kirby, they're, I would say, also falling Puyos, since they don't look like they changed at all. No, in Dr. Robotnik's, they're beans. <laughs> yes, in Dr. Robotnik's, they are beans. So they uh, have eyes, and they're little balls, and they're various different colors, and you have to match them up, and if you get four more, they disappear. And if you get a significantly more number than four, and you can chain it, you can actually cause distress to your opponent. You can send non-matching Puyo Puyos that are like rocks over to the other side and you you had there's a single player where you go through the like going up against um, uh, artificial intelligent opponent like computer opponents and there's also a multiplayer where you can go up against a friend it's a great game it's a lot of fun a lot of fights have happened because of it because of uh, dropping one million puya puyos on somebody and causing them to tap out but it's a lot of like timing your drop so that like you get one four and then it drops and causes like another five or six that ca- drops and then causes is another four connection and it's that's how it, it is supposed to play it's a it's a fun game that i like however i have a higher nostalgia for dr robotnik's mean bee machine so if i'm gonna play a puya puya game i'm just gonna play that one so i'm not gonna play a kirby game uh, but if you like kirby more than dr robotnik then you should play the kirby one for 
Next week, I would like Zach to play, is it Bond? No, it's Pond. James Pond, underwater agent. And that's going to be for the Sega Genesis. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. So the game that Seth gave me was Lemmings for the Apple II. Now, I want to clarify something for our listeners. So when Seth and I were were talking after last week's episode, uh, he had sent me a box art for Lemmings for the Apple II. And he said, this is what I want you to play. And I said, okay. So I I looked up that game. I don't know if Seth knew this, but the game box art that he had sent me, the game he told me to play, was not related to Lemmings, the 1991 game that came out for the Amiga and later DOS. Lemmings, for the Apple II, was a game made by Sirius Software in 1982. And it's kind of like a Pac-Man style game. You have a uh, grid set up with various buildings and you have to like drive around and collect these dots and stuff and those dots are lemmings and they move around so it's a little different than pac-man the the lemmings kind of like go to various different parts of the map i actually had trouble finding a working version of this game Uh, i i went through the internet archive i went through a couple of different places i ended up on a french website and downloading a disc image that didn't seem to work so i ended up in all honesty watching a youtube video of someone play the game and getting kind of an experience that way and uh, Frankly, that's enough experience for me. Do I think Lemmings 1982, serious software for the Apple II holds up? I'm not going to go looking for a copy of it anytime soon, so probably not. But if it's something you're nostalgic for, maybe. Now, while I was searching for Lemmings 1982, serious software, I did stumble upon a Lemmings 1991 port for the Apple II, which came out actually just a few years ago by a guy named Vince Weaver. It was a proof of concept he developed. Uh, he does a lot of proof of concepts. He actually did a version of Mist for the Apple II. It uses like ASCII graphics. He calls it Mist Low Res Mode. Uh, Lemmings for the Apple II, the Vince Weaver version, looks much closer to the Lemmings I'm familiar with, where you play as this kind of like omnipotent god, I guess, who controls these little creatures called Lemmings. Uh, well, you're not really controlling them. You're kind of telling them to like, oh, dig here or, or like turn left uh, because you're trying to get them to go from point A to point B without dying in between. I will say that Vince Weaver's version, while very competent and very good looking for an Apple II game, had some issues with controls that I was I was facing. I don't know if it's particularly the emulator I was using as I wasn't able to get the game onto a disc for trying it out on real hardware. So I might have to revisit it. I'm sure uh, if I could figure out the controls, I'm sure it plays competently too. But so it technically looked at two Lemmings games and I played one of them and it wasn't the one that Seth wanted me to play. But maybe it was the one Seth actually wanted me to play, but he didn't know it yet. Anyway, Lemmings, serious software, doesn't quite hold up. Lemmings by Vince Weaver, it seems to hold up. I like it. I thought the graphics could good, so I'd give it a shot again. I want to try to get it onto a disc, see if I can get it running on uh, my actual Apple II. So Seth, next week, your game is going to be a Super Nintendo game. Uh, your game is going to be Captain Novelin. Fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> With that ominous note, I want to let everyone know that we appreciate you for listening to us and that if you want to listen to us more you can find us wherever podcasts are available you can also if you like this episode and want to hear more topics like this episode you can send us an email at classic at gmail.com where you could say that episode 
was utter garbage. Finally, uh, if you want to check out our socials, our Instagram, Twitch, and Facebook are all at Classic Gaming Brothers, and our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. And we announce all of our new episodes when we release them, and we also announce any future projects that we're going to be working on. And we have a couple, well, we say we have one in the works, which we're really excited about, and we're hoping to bring it to you guys very soon. But with that, Zach, is there anything else that I'm missing? Yes, yes, you are missing something, Seth, and that is don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. We've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's That's right. right.